Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I'm delighted to have David Slolly, who is the founder of Harvey David, a marketing automation firm. David, would you like to tell people who you are, what you do, and who you do it for? Yeah, so um, as you said, my name is David Slolly, and um, what I do is I help organizations that have adopted marketing automation or are looking to adopt marketing automation get the most out of their platforms. Um, and we specialize in the Oracle platform, which is Eloqua. And I do it for our company, Harvey David. Our clients are, of course, absolutely lovely. And they include the likes <laughs> of um, Hearst Health and uh, Rico UK and Civicum. Excellent. Okay, well, let's start out with marketing automation. What is it, first of all? So what is marketing automation? Good question. Well, it's a few things. And I guess from an audience point of view, what I'd want to know about is, well, okay, what are the benefits? Well, the first thing is, as a company, as you scale, it gets to a point where you can't do everything manually. And so you can automate some of the processes in your marketing department. That's marketing automation. Most people think of it as an email send tool that can send to lots of people, but of course it's much more than that. It interlinks with um, offline, online, your, your social activity. And the, the idea is isn't to be able to blast more people with uh, targeted offers. That's not really the point of marketing automation. The point of marketing automation is to remove the friction between your customer and the journey they're on, giving them a better customer experience. And I guess the story for me that really got me thinking about marketing automation, it was I was taking the family on our first family camping holiday in the UK. So I had to prepare for all eventualities. And one of the things I needed was a tent. I had nothing at that point um, other than the car to try to get around it. So I needed to get myself a tent. So I went online, I went shopping for a tent. And every tent supplier wanted to tell me how many litres per second of water it could repel. I didn't know if that was good or bad. I mean, I assumed it would be waterproof. They wanted to tell me how, how much it weighed and all this information. But what they didn't really think about is what I wanted to know. is Can I put this up and take it down without looking a complete idiot in front of other campers? Because ultimately, that's what I'm going to be doing. Someone take me on that user journey, please. And I found it was actually what surprised me is it wasn't the company. I bought an outwell tent in the end, and it wasn't outwell. It was a just a, a random person out there somewhere had filmed themselves putting the tent up in the rain in less than five minutes and keeping dry. And I watched the video about eight times until I could memorize their moves. So I mean, that's the tent I'm buying. Why isn't all purchases like that? Why is it always trying to sell me something I already want to buy and not just making the buying journey really easy for me? Because if I don't want to, I'm not going to buy it anyway, however easy it makes. But just made the journey easy. It just made buying so simple. And I wanted to start applying that in the B2B world, which is where I operate. And that's pretty much what I do. So marketing automation for me is very much about the customer experience. What can we do for someone that's already in the market, already looking at your product or service anyway, to make it very easy for them to say yes or no? Yes, you're the kind of company that can solve the kind of problem I've got, or no, you're not the kind of company that can solve the problem I've got, so I'll move on to the next one. That's where I think we can really make a difference and remove the friction from the buyer journey and the, and all the rest of the gubbies that comes with it that can cause a bad customer experience. This is really interesting because I teach the same principles within the sales process, that it's the seller's job to make it as easy and frictionless as possible for the customer yes. to buy from you. And that requires you to get inside their skin, understand why it matters to them. The problem I see happen a lot is it's like someone who's just had a baby and they insist, insist on showing you photos of this ugly kid and they tell you about all the reasons why they think it's important that you should buy for them. And that's why I'm very wary of salespeople who get onto this feature and benefit rap because what they tend to do is sound just like everybody else in the same way you know they're talking about the number of liters of water they can repel. If yeah. that's not important to you, then why are you telling me that? So what I'm really interested in 
to go deeper is how do you personalize when you're dealing with a mass of prospects? Well, the good thing is that you can you can personalize by looking at the, um, by the way, there are seagulls just appearing outside my window. I heard. <laughs> I, am not, I am not on the beach. I think they're just attacking the bins that are outside. <laughs> I'll leave that in the edit because it's funny. <laughs> but, so um, how do you personalise? Well, let's take my tent example. I was on their website clicking around at a, pers- at a particular type of tent and it was asking me if I wanted more information and downloading brochures and, and get it. And yes, I did because I'm buying a tent. And I, I'm a big boy and I'll know how to say no if it's not the one I want. And it was at those particular points they had the opportunity to ask me the kind of questions that would, that would qualify the kind of tent on the closest window to think of the kind of tent I was looking for. Now, if I roll back many years to an accidental job I had, Marcus, so I intended to go travelling. I did go travelling, but one of my buddies said he'll come along travelling with me, but he needed three months to get some cash together. And it was right at the beginning of the summer and I finished everything I needed to do and I had no money to go travelling, so I was just really just hanging out. And I passed a local Ford dealer in Richmond upon Thames and the cars were filthy outside. So I went in and I, and I said to the, to the guy that was managing the place, look, I need something to do over the summer. Your cars are filthy. I'll clean them if you like. So sure, we'll, we'll do that. And he took me to the um, to the area where they keep all the cleaning materials. And there was a couple of old motorcycles. Well, they weren't old, but they were very dusty motorcycles. And I said to him, well, I'm curious, how much do you want for these? And this is a long time ago. These are 50 quid each. So I said, okay, I'll take them both. And I bought the first one, and I rode it to a local motorcycle dealer, and I sold it for £300. <laughs> took the cab back, get on the second one, rode it. And by this, by this time, we're past midday, and he comes round to see what I'm doing and why I haven't cleaned any cars. And I said, I'll be honest with you, I bought the two bikes, and I took them and I sold them. So I don't pay me for this morning. And yeah, he curiously said, well, how much did you sell them for? I said, £350 each. And he grabbed me by the arm, and he frog-marched me into the showroom. And in front of everyone, he announced this is our new car salesman. He's made more money for himself this morning than any of you have made for the entire business. <laughs> and so, so I ended up being this sort of accidental car salesman. And most of my life has been, been accidental, this or accidental, that. So I've become this accidental car salesman, and I kind of enjoyed it. I liked the idea of selling cars, but mostly what I did during the days was terrible. I would be given, there used to be this magazine called Auto Trader. And I'd be given a copy of Auto Trader, and he would say to me, every single person with their car for sale in that Auto Trader is going to want to buy another car. Bring them up and see if you can sell them a car. And so I would literally be on the phone going, oh, sorry, your husband's not in till four o'clock and he's leaving the car. I'll call back. And I'd be writing these little notes all over this Auto Trader magazine, trying to connect with people and buy things. And it was, it was a near impossible task. It would be lovely if we could have automated that process, but we couldn't back then. I was literally bashing the phone. I don't think I sold a single car by ringing people up on Auto Trader. Right. But come the weekend, in the summer, lots of people would come to the forecourt. And there I got to really shine. I would get to chat to people. And I would ask them what they were looking for, what they wanted to do with their car. Oh, you've got a family. Okay, so you want one, how many? Oh, there's five of you, so you bigger. And so I would always come from the point of view that my opinion or that opinion of Ford is interesting, but it's irrelevant. Absolutely. You're a car buyer. What matters to you today to be able to drive away in a car that you don't immediately feel some kind of buyer's remorse about? And that came from trying to understand them. And, and I ended up staying with that company. It was called Curry Motors. I stayed with them for about five months in the end. And they sent me off on some wonderful training courses where I learned lots about sales. And back then, it all came back to the fundamental, what is the narrative the customer is carrying and how do we support them getting to their goal? That's always important. If they came onto the forecourt looking for an armoured tank, then don't try and sell them a car because it's wrong. 
they need an armoured tank, they're going to war. But they never do. Of course, they're coming on and forth with the full range of cars. So selling cars on a weekend was quite an easy process. But I told you about the the day-to-day shenanigans of opening up auto trade and dread I'd get even after a cup of coffee just having to sit randomly dine all these people. No real way of managing or automating this process. Well, of course, marketing automation enables you to automate this huge number of inputs and start bringing together data of how people are behaving on the website. What are they looking at? What are they downloading? And then that makes it much easier when a salesperson speaks to them to already have an idea of the kind of things they've been looking at, downloading, potentially reading or downloaded or not read, emails they've opened, pages they've looked at. And that enables you to join the conversation with some knowledge and start being able to offer value rather than defaulting. And we're only in salespeople. There's no blame I place on them. We're all human. You quickly start defaulting to the benefits and the products that you and the services you supply. Right? Yeah. So you immediately start saying, we sell cars. Oh, we've got great cars. Our cars are so good. They're, they're, they've got electric cars. We've got petrol cars. We've got this. And you don't even ask them what they want because it's difficult when you're not standing with someone to really ask them. There is a so, simple rule that you're learning nothing when your lips are moving. So tell me this. Why is marketing done so poorly? I mean, I receive an inbox full of drivel and none of it feels relevant or personalized. Why is it that given we know that that stuff doesn't work and it works if you're doing large numbers, but the price you pay is all the people who will never do business with you as a result of that poor experience. So why is it that kind of traditional throw mud at the wall behavior persists? I'll have a stab at answering that because I think if I could really just pluck an answer out of the air, you and I would stop the podcast right now and go and open champagne and celebrate for the rest okay. of our lives making a portrait. But I'm going to have a stab at answering it, Marcus, because I, I've got some thoughts. And if you're listening to this and you want to push back with my thoughts, you're welcome to do that. Go find Marcus and shout to him first, though. Right, those are my thoughts. It's like being Marcus, <laughs> <laughs> Hold yourselves, Mark T. These are my thoughts. In 2008, the Western economy started to slide off the edge of the spreadsheet. And with that timing came some sweeping changes within every department inside the corporation. Yeah? Yeah. And marketing wasn't left out of that mix. You had to do more with less. And as soon as you're doing more with less, you have to cut some corners. And you start looking at ways of potentially maybe not going out and leaving your desk and taking a few days to go and meet potential prospects, people that have been customers in the past, people that could be customers, and get into their mindset and find out what it is that they need answering, what's the narratives they're running. You start cutting out the things that aren't hugely visual the things that everyone won't see. And so what you're left with is the physical copy and any images that go with your marketing. And that easiest, what you end up with if you just do that is here are our benefits and our products. And then you could argue, well, if I can send it on a big enough scale, I'll get some hits. Now, marketing pre-marketing automation was, for a lot of companies, not the more, but for a lot of companies, was very much, well, you know, first of all, the measurement was actually done by getting out of the door on time. And right. secondly, once it was all out, you'd go to the board, and if it worked, you took all the credit for it. It was our best campaign ever. And if it didn't work, you blamed it on something, I don't know, where the, the, the World Cup was on or, or whatever it is, and you, you could blame it on and say that's why it didn't work. With all marketing automation, things shift slightly. Because now you can start seeing, well, we've got this many people at the top of the funnel so therefore, that many people will move to the middle of the funnel. This many people will move to the bottom. This many people will convert over this period of time. So we should do that many deals. And our numbers should equate to X by the end of the month. So it's become a lot more sophisticated and a lot more mathematical. So what's gone wrong with marketing is moving to that mathematical model is a completely different mindset. 
anything a marketeer has ever been used to in the history of advertising and marketing, period. So what a mind shift. You're now saying to marketeers, look, you're doing less with more because we suddenly didn't start hiring everyone again after 2011, 12, 13, when the economy started picking up. That didn't happen. We just carried on with the same headcounts in a lot of cases, so maybe some new heads brought in. And what happened is we, the promoters would have carried on doing that same style of marketing, doing it out the door as fast as possible and then blaming the results on something else. Right. Now, we can measure, we can see, but that whole idea of thinking about always-on campaigns, thinking about lead nurture in a sophisticated way that's tuned to the mindset, to the narrative of your customer is a massive leap from getting a bit of getting a headline and an image down on a piece of paper and out the door on LinkedIn. That is where the gap sits at the moment. And the, the gap hasn't got enough people in it who can understand that mindset. Well, I think they can all understand it, but can deliver on that mindset and therefore persuade their paymasters for their business to really sit comfortable with their customers they need to understand their customers at a whole new level and they need to be there to help their customers through the buying journey, not to flog them stuff. It's really That's my take on it. Some people are going to dislike that. Maybe yourself as well, Marcus. But no, I think that I'm makes not, a lot know, of That's sense. my opinion. Well, it reminds me of a story I heard probably about 10 years ago where HP's training division had their marketing budget slashed from three million to £10,000. And the marketing manager had to do some pretty nifty footwork to try and work out how to hit her numbers. So what she did was she wrote to customers who'd bought something in the previous eight years and tried to sell them something similar but different. And they increased sales by a dramatic event. I can't remember exactly how much, but it was astronomical. And I heard recently that Procter & Gamble has just slashed their digital marketing budget by 147 million pounds and it's had no discernible impact on their sales. So there seems to be an awful lot of wasted effort in the marketing arena. And what I'm curious about, because I'm sure particularly my interest is in working with businesses that are looking to scale up in the technology arena. They are resource tight, cash is constrained, And what they want to do is pinpoint those people who are most likely to buy and uh, engage them in a conversation that allows them to enter a sales dialogue with them. So understanding the customer journey is key and getting inside the mind of the customer is absolutely key. I'm really curious about what technologies are out there in terms of AI, for example, that help marketeers to identify prospective customers based on their online social media activity as a company to see where there may be centers of dissatisfaction and an opening to create a sales conversation. There's a lot of vendors that are offering a lot of AI, and I'm putting my left hand and right hand up in the air as I say that, and weakening my index figure and the one that sits next to it, these used to use the dialer phone, I don't know what one's called, but I'm wiggling my fingers saying AI, because a lot of it's smoke and mirrors, let's be, yeah. let's be honest, yeah? So there's a lot of vendors out there offering it. The fastest and easier way to do it is to use pots of data and say, right, okay, these people purchased, find people that look like those people they're likely to purchase, right? And the rest of it is lots of other techniques. For me, I believe you've got to step out and offer something that will help people, like a handout to those people and say, this will help you on your journey. You know, I mainly work with companies that have complex B2B offerings. Okay, so the buyers probably are stepping into this for the first or second time and are complexity. So they're looking for something that will help break down the complexity and answer questions. What can the organization make available that people will be grabbing at and saying thank you very much? Now, I know, Marcus, you put materials out 
that enable people to better understand how to solve the kind of problems they've got. And that's ultimately, if you are a, a startup in a space and you want to minimize your resource spend, then focus on what is the one thing you can create because you have the knowledge, because you're the experts, that you can productize and package so that the kind of person who wants those answers, when they Google it, they'll come across it and they'll take it and say thank you. And that's probably not an advert. That is going to be some piece of collateral that's going to aid people on that journey. Certainly, content's been incredibly powerful for our business. So I try and produce two or three pieces of content a day during the week. And what I find is that people engage with that content because what I'm trying to do all the time is enter into the conversations they're already having. I'm trying to address the questions that they are asking or identifying the problems that they're having and helping them to realize what questions they should be asking. And in the last couple of years, that's generated well over a million pounds worth of new business for us. So tell me this, in terms of how you can automate that process, because I'd love to be able to automate some of it because it's quite effort intensive. Is there a way that you can automate content? Okay, there's a lot of chat around at the moment about automating the bots, computers creating content, and it can be done, of course. But really, AI, we'll need training, a lot of training, just to understand the difference between boots to chemist and boots that you wear on your And there comes the rub with a lot of AIs. It just simply can't do that. At this point in the game, if you're a startup, I wouldn't be looking at AI to solve my problem. I'd be looking at what is it my startup does that people are going to find so interesting. That's we take my own, own company. We're marketing automation. What's the latest thing that we've done? Well, we've published a book called The Eloquent Mindset. Eloquent is a, an Oracle marketing cloud marketing automation solution. And it's conversations with successful marketers who are realizing the potential of marketing automation. Now, if you've just been charged as a marketer of implementing this kind of uh, software, a marketing automation play, then this little book with seven interviews from people all over the world who have told you what they've done right and what they've done wrong, that will take 25 minutes to read, is actually a nice little piece to receive. And we've only just published that now, so that will start appearing on feeds, and people will be able to get it for free, either as a hardback copy, which we send to people, or they can download it as a PDF. And in exchange, we ask for an email address and name. We're not going to then start blasting with offers, but we will probably follow up by the people we've posted to. We'll post them then follow up with your case studies. Useful things that people go, ah, that was a took me two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes to read, and I've learned something to help me on my journey to implement marketing automation in my business. That's how we focus it. Rather than seeing if I could get artificial intelligence to solve that problem for me and risk it's uh, it going down some some uh, some strange road of missing the nuance. We've done it manually and written that. The automation part comes in that when people do put in their details, that's captured, and we can automate a response to that. So we can say, in um, four weeks' time, send that person a case study that's taken from the book, which is slightly more expanded, and say, you may have read about Mary Wallace and the good work she's done at United Media. Here's the full case study that walks you through how she switched on Eloqua for the first time, and so on and so forth. So we just, and depending on how they respond to those emails, it will show us what we do next. So if they download and read it, then we'll send them another one, maybe a couple of weeks later. We may invite them to a webinar and see if they'd like to come along. And here we're putting on an event with Oracle and we'll invite them to an event to come and hear Mary Wallace speak via link up from the US and you can ask her questions yourself. And we've done one of these with Oracle and they're great. The front row was full of people who had a lot of questions. And I surrounded myself with a team of experts and we answered them as many as we could. And these were some of these difficult questions that they were struggling to answer. So it's about 
being useful. Well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I agree with you that there's an awful lot of hype and smoke and mirrors around marketing, sales automation, marketing automation. And at the end of the day, you're still selling to human beings and they all want to be understood. And I think where marketing really comes into its own is in raising awareness so that people know that you exist and then becoming familiar. And once you've become familiar, build on that trust and start influencing the way they are thinking, what they're reading, in order to help them recognize that they have a problem that you can fix and to position yourself as being a potential solution provider and someone who has their best interests at heart. I think one of the biggest mistakes in sales, but it's also in marketing, is being selfish. If you're worried about your target, if you're worried about your quota, and what you're doing is you're focusing your attention on that, you get reflected back what you project out. And if your marketing is selfish, if it's lazy, and it doesn't feel relevant, it doesn't feel like I'm speaking to you as an individual about your issues, then chances are you're going to just wipe me out and someone else is going to be able to capture your attention. So I'm really curious, when we originally spoke about doing this podcast, you mentioned your channel sales recruitment program, and it was in the subject of crazy ideas. And you've mentioned Wellies, so this seems like an opportune time for you to tell that story. Do you mind sharing that? Because there is a lot to be said for novelty. We're humans, yeah? We're like magpies. We see something shining in the shop and we want to go and have a look. So there is a lot to be said in all marketing, B2B and B2C. But sometimes novelty will trump. And if you've got a novel idea, why not give it a go? So, yes, let's share with you a novel idea. So at the time, I was working as a creative director for a B2B technology marketing agency. I'm the accidental creative director. I didn't come from the traditional route of being a designer, making beautiful designs and then being asked to be a creative director. I came from the route as I originally trained as a journalist. I have a passion for business and how the mechanics of business work. and just happened to end up writing ads and then moved into marketing. So you had to tell stories. And at the time, the agency I worked for needed help telling some stories, as well as going through its own business, its own business transformation they felt I could help with. So I was always looking for the story. So I was the guy that wouldn't be at his desk. And when someone asked where I was and phoned me, I'd be on the road somewhere going to talk to someone because I'd want to know something. I'm curious like that. And Microsoft had, had come to us with a challenge. They'd started a portal for their channel. They wanted to get they had 7,000 people in the channel. They wanted them all to go into this sort of a Facebook for vendors, I think they called it, or positioned it as. And they were a little bit surprised that they'd launched it, emailed all the vendors, and only half a dozen had been on it and had a look. And so I said, I'll go and have a look. And I had a look. And my first thing was, that, you know, you're saying this is a portal where everyone's going to come along. But what did, when, what did, when they get there, all it is you sell them stuff. First of all, there's no party here. There's no beautiful people and there's no music. It's just a dull space. So make it a little bit more interesting for things to do. And we worked through a few ideas for that. Now we needed to get the kinds of vendors on there. Now, this is a typical brief that could have come in, yeah? And I was having a coffee with someone this morning, and I said to her, I said, briefs for grown-ups should have three words, and that's enough. Yeah? That's how that should be. We don't need the whole thing. And the brief for that particular job, I guess, could have been something like, drive my audience here, please. And they should have all asked to go and figure out how to do this. It was probably a typical brief to outline who the audience are. Probably said things like they're time poor and that they are Microsoft experts and all the usual stuff, which isn't particularly helpful in actually engaging an audience. So I did what I always did. I saw the brief. I realized what I wanted to do. And so I got in the car and I drove off to find these vendor people and I asked them to set me up to go and meet some. And then I went into their workspaces and I stood in the middle of their workspaces and were able to chat 
to the very audience they wanted to attract. And this particular audience were in their mid to late 20s, predominantly male, who like to play golf, like messing around, hanging out in the office all day. It's that kind of bit of football chat, that kind of stuff. Yeah. When you talk to them about Microsoft, uh, Microsoft are a bit diff, but they are what they are. So I went away with this learning and thought, wouldn't it be fun if we got our creative team together and see if we can come up with some ideas? This is absolutely true. We took a video camera to the local park and we were joking around with a video camera, trying out different things. And one of the guys was pretending to be one of those sort of American, overbearing trainers that take you on those day courses where you will bond, you know, those training, those bond, those work bonding things that takes you on those. And he's been all very Microsoft-y. So he's using all of the acronyms and he's saying things like, this is the power triangle. We <laughs> will rise to the top and we will spear the meat of profitability. <laughs> and, uh, and one of the team put a hand up and said, but I'm a vegetarian. And he said, well, Spear the berries! And we're all just laughing. And we just kept going and going and recorded about I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes of this material. And we cut it up and we wrote it into a script and we sent it over to no, I didn't send it, I think I took it over by hand because I knew that this is I've done other work for Microsoft where it falls a flowery space. I just went, no, we would never do that. You will never bring Clippy back to life and make fun of him. He is a sacred piece of clip art, is that paper clip. That happened to me once, so I scrapped that idea. But So this one, I took it in. I said, look, I think we've got something. I've been to see the audience. This will engage that audience. They're little videos they can share around internally on their computer. They'll have a laugh, and the call to action will be some, oh, yes, yeah, back to the world. Leave the muddy boots at home and join us online. So, yeah to create more wealth through the Microsoft vendor platform, probably more eloquently written than that. But that was the thing. And this little video with our guy being overbearing on the building the raft of profitability and all that other good stuff. And fortunately, the lead that we were working with in Microsoft loved it. And also, you know, what else was he going to do? He'd already emailed everyone through the database and then no one had joined it, so he might as well do something. So we made that video, we created it, it got signed off all the way through and we launched it, sent it off. It did the rounds. More than 7,000 people signed up for their portal. It was hugely successful and we captured the data. And at the end of the year, I entered it into the B2B Marketing Awards and it won first place, which was wonderful for our client, wonderful for us, and testament that sometimes if you look at things through a different lens, maybe try being a bit playful and get out from behind your desk. There's no answers. There's no nothing. There's no answers at your desk, and the answers aren't on Google. Everything on Google has already been done, and someone's put it on there for you to find. That's okay. Go and do something new. You need to get out of the desk, out of the office, go outside and do things and play. Okay, have a lot of time for that. And that's where the novelty can come. But it must start with truly understanding the business problem, truly understanding and having a care about what's going to resonate with the audience and what was going to resonate with 20-something male biased joking around the office audience would be a little video they could socially share. And when they and the act of socially sharing it around their office would give them some social currency. That was it. When we started from that point, the world was our oyster. We could start making things that were a little bit more fun and, and silly. And and out of it came big Awards. Fabulous. So I really do advocate as a marketeer not just looking at the brief and saying that's what we must do. We must follow all the things they've asked us to do on the brief. But if you can, challenge it and say, well, what does the audience really need? What are they going to do? Why, why would they engage? How can I, how can I do something for it and maybe surprise them? They wouldn't expect this tone of voice from Microsoft. So the novelty will be enough to get me through the first few seconds of the video. And the, the quality of the video will get them to the end. It's only a minute long. And the strap line at the end, the payoff at the end, 
will pick their curiosity to go and have a look at what the offers are that Microsoft have. And it was a very good offer, actually. They basically were connecting all the vendors together. So if I sold software and another vendor sold hardware and someone came to me for software and hardware, I could connect with this other vendor and do a joint deal. Last time we spoke, you mentioned this concept of convergence points. And one of the key challenges is to be able to look at where thinking within an organization is converging. So in our world, we're looking for centers of dissatisfaction. And for example, a finance system may not be serving everybody within the organization. It serves the finance department just fine. But there's a lot of information that goes into it and comes out of it that may not be as effective as it possibly could be or clear enough or easy to access. And what I'm curious about is how you go about identifying that story. I get that you go out and you speak to people. What do you do back at their head office to make sure that there is buy-in, to make sure that everybody, you know, there's this frictionless approach between yeah. sales and marketing and operations and finance and legal and technical? Yeah, you have to wear a lot of hats as a marketeer. As in fact, not as a market, as any, any part of business now. If you look, if we sort of rewind business 25 years ago, everyone was talking about, and what were they talking about? Oh, yeah, we're, um, we're going to break down the silos. I remember that. We're going to break down the silos. Everyone's going to break down the silos because business was very much siloed. The finance department, like you said, operated in the realms of finance and the marketing department operated within its realms of and now, as we're moving on, we are bringing more and more software into play. And with that, we collect more and more data, more information, information that works beyond the finance department and can influence marketing and can help us understand uh, ordering processes better. And so we start seeing all these different softwares, but these, a lot of these softwares are still operating in their own silos right now. So if you extrapolate where it's going to go, ultimately, you're going to stick all your software together for your business and you won't have a business, you'll have an ecosystem that provides solutions for people or other companies. It'll be an ecosystem where every part is dependent on every part. And that would make sense. This is really interesting because the work that I'm doing in the channel is leading to the point where an individual vendor can't possibly provide everything that's required. And what we're seeing increasingly is a partner with partner kind of environment because the partners have the end user relationship and the vendor is one point or what one element in the stack within that ecosystem. And I'm really curious to see how marketing is evolving to take into account that the message needs to go throughout the entire ecosystem. Well, marketing is in a really good position to own that entire space. Why? Because they have at their disposal something like whatever marketing automation platform you have. The marketing automation platform goes way beyond serving emails and web banners. Yeah? Yep. It can start defining what your next quarter sales will be because it can look at conversion rates and see what's coming in through the funnel. Yeah? Yeah. So suddenly your marketing department is connected directly to finance. It's, correct, it's directly connected to the board. No longer is the head of marketing, the CMO, walking into the board saying, I oh, was done a really good campaign. I can't wait to show you the pictures. And hopefully, fingers crossed, in three months' time, we'll have some good numbers to show you. And if we don't, we'll blame it on the World Cup. That's kind of gone. Now, the CMO can walk in and say, we're looking at the figures, and we have a conversion rate of X. We have this many coming down the pipe. So we are now talking to supply chain to make sure we can deliver enough product. We can build enough product. So they are in a really strong position to look forward at the profitability and the turnover and look up the other way, up the, up the supply chain direction, saying, are we able to create the goods? So marketing is moving more into a, a very strong business play if the individual allows themselves to, because we mustn't forget we're humans. Most people didn't get into marketing because they have a passion for understanding the supply chain and ensuring that the finance is locked to it. That's not why they went into it. You know, most people went into marketing because they love the idea of creative and headlines and running projects and having these big clients that they work for. That's why they got into it. But future, and this is just my humble opinion, future marketing 
has the opportunity to be at the centre of business, to really understand how it's going to communicate to that customer, onboard them, how it's going to service them, what the profit, what the model is going to look like for extracting some additional value from it. Whereas IP can see, and looking back down the supply chain, how is it going to service it, whether that's a partner and partner service or whether that's a product build that needs to, we need enough of them because we can see X number coming down the pipe now. So marketing can either squeeze itself out and become this little silo unit on the side that stamps out copycat answers to briefs, or it can position itself right in the middle of the business and start understanding how all the different components of business come together and how marketing is beyond just creating the message that can touch all those elements and they can all add value to each other in moving forward to build that ecosystem. Very interesting. I do have a question which you've just sparked in my mind. There's an awful lot of talk at at the moment about the customer experience, which I, I think most people or most organizations only pay lip service to instead of really believing. My question is this, given that marketing has visibility of all of this data, how is it being used in order to spot patterns, in order to improve customer service and preempt problems in order to eliminate them before a customer experiences them? You can see how people are behaving and you can start looking for areas where there's repeat patterns where people drop off, where probably some frictions happen. And that could be as simple as they can't find the thing they're looking for because you've hidden it on the website. Or it could be they're moving along a journey and they suddenly disappear because that journey ended for them. There's lots of intricacies, there's lots of ways of playing it, but I think the first and foremost is having the mindset to say, I am curious and caring the customer moves towards us in a way that serves their purpose. Trying to be brave enough and pushy enough to see past the immediate need to get something out and go and find out what people really need. Have you made mistakes in the past where you didn't challenge your client? Oh. Oh. That sounds yeah. like a yes. That's so, you know, because it's so easy to get caught up. You know, we did it recently. A brief came in and, it, oh, we really need a quick response. Could you? And I was like, oh, okay, we'll help you out with a quick response. And my gut was saying, apologize to them and say we're not the kind of people that can solve that problem today. But I was so keen to try and help them out, and it was only a little bit, and just do that, and I just did that, I just answered this bit, and then, then they went, oh, by the way, and oh, we must, must include, and it was like, well, hang on a minute. I think we're kind of going a bit far down the road of just conceptualising a very basic idea that we really need to go away and do this other bit. Oh, no, we don't have time for that. You know, it's a true. It's true. It's not. I'm not blaming the clients. They have time constraints, but I fall. I fall into the trap probably every three months. I fall for it and uh, and try and do something. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's not going to suddenly go away. We are marketing people are bent towards trying to help people. You know, we're, yeah. we're like there's one of the kids in my in my kids' school. The parents, a few of them are parents of doctors. If you stop them in the playground, they'll try and help. They'll try and help you. You go to the ailment, they'll try and help. But really, they're just trying to help. If it's a real medical condition, they need to do a deeper dive. They need to understand me. They don't have my record to hand. They don't know anything about me. But they'll try and help. And that's people. That's our good nature, isn't it? We try and help. So we fall into this. And we'll always fall into it. And I guess we've just got to take that one on the chin. We're going to fall into it every now and then and try and help, and it's not really going to help anyone. But if we have a mindset where we are solution-focused and are going to find out what it is that makes the people tick that we're trying to serve, then there's every opportunity that when we do get the chance, we can go out and do something meaningful. It's interesting because... One of the things I teach my clients is that people come to us for leadership and a safe pair of hands. And it's incumbent upon us to say no to stuff 
if it's not good for them or it's not good for us. And that need to please that approval addiction is lethal in business yeah. because yeah, all it does is undermine your credibility and they fail yeah. to get the result that they want. So yeah. in terms of trying to juggle those priorities and make sure that the customer is getting the solution that they need, not necessarily the one that they want, but the one that they need. What's your process for going through that briefing to make sure that you actually understand the brief to the point where you can deliver what it is that they need? Well, I don't have an exact formula because everyone is different. I have an ambition, and that is to understand what motivates the person that we're trying to talk to or people and what narratives they are carrying. Because that's what really matters, right? We make decisions all the time. We're always making decisions as humans. And there is this kind of thinking that the decisions I make in my personal life are probably very different from the decisions I make in my professional life. But the truth is they're not that different. Most decisions we make in life are pulled from emotional feelings. Absolutely. And we hate to admit it, in the, especially in a B2B space, but that's just the simple truth. Yeah? If you're listening to this right now and you're saying, well, that, is the biggest pile of horseshit I've ever heard in my life. Let me ask you these three questions and tell me if these weren't driven, how these were driven, really purely rational decisions you made. One, did you make a purely rational decision on your career choice? Or did things happen, some serendipity, something felt right, something, and you did it? Okay, maybe you did make a purely rational decision on your career choice. The second one, what about the home you live in? Was that a purely rational decision when you went through the purchase of the home you live in, which is the biggest purchase you'll probably make in your life? Did you measure the amount of light coming through the windows and the distance to the amenities over the scale of the building and the floor? Did you measure all that? Or did you, what happened to me, walk into the place and say, this feels right, this feels like home, okay? Hundreds of thousands of pounds on the table and you're saying to me, all right, this feels like the place we should live. All right, you'll say, no, I made a completely rational decision, David, on the property I purchased. And see, so I still don't believe your emotional argument. All right, then, final one. Was it a pure, rational decision that you made when you chose the partner that you're going to live in that property with? Because it can't be. 100% of buying decisions are 100% emotional 100% of the time. And there are no right. exceptions. I remember coming home from London one day in March and I wondered if they had one. So I turned right and they did. So I bought it. And now I had a week to explain to my wife how I'd gone about or why I'd gone about buying myself a five litre convertible. And <laughs> the real reason I bought it was because it had a starter button. It was one of the first cars that had a starter button. And when you press the button, the engine went, and I really liked the sound. But yeah. it was really important to have a five-litre car driving into London at an average speed of 11 miles an hour. And so I phoned her up a week later when I was picking it up. And I said, sweetheart, what's the sound quality like? What do you mean? I said, well, I've bought new hands-free. And, oh, it's much better. So I turned up in an outrageously overpriced hands-free that came with a free convertible. And my logic to justify it was that anyone who I uh, was selling to would know I was successful because you can't afford a car like that unless you're successful. But in three years of owning this car, I worked in London and I parked in underground garages and then I took a taxi to wherever I went. So in all of that time, only one person, and that was a client, saw my car. But I justified it and using that. You justify, and that's an important part. If we know that emotions drive our decisions, they influence our attitudes, the decisions yep. that we make, emotions. The other thing I'm really then interested in is what you just talked about, is what are the narratives people are carrying around in their head relating to this five-litre monstrous car that sucks fuel through the car at an alarming rate? Because yep. it can't be that. So what is the narrative they're carrying? Well, the narrative is carrying it. They're going to look, they want to look successful. 
in front of customers. Well, now we're starting to get to something because when I understand the narratives that people are carrying with them, I'm much more likely to be able to join that part of the conversation. Absolutely. Well, I mean, for the last 250,000 years, our ancestors have been sat around campfires telling stories. You're not going to override hundreds of thousands or millions of years of evolutionary hardwiring. At the end of the day, we're social primates with egos and speech, and we buy, we make decisions emotionally. In fact, if the emotion centers of the brain get damaged, you can't make decisions. You can't decide between a white and a blue shirt or whether to have crispy chili beef or salt and pepper prawns off the menu. And choosing between that white and the blue shirt, sometimes it needs the person who works in the showroom, in the store, to say, do you know what? You should go with the white shirt. That's enough for me. Fine. Because there isn't maybe any difference between it. I just need someone to nudge me towards the right one. If my narrative is simply, I want a nice shirt, and I like wearing nice shirts, and I can't decide between the blue and the white, I may walk out of the store without buying anything because I can't make my mind up. Sometimes I just need someone to nudge us the final part of the journey and get us um, over the line, get the deal over the line. Absolutely. But the narrative is really important. So that's part of my process, which isn't really a process, is to go out, understand who these people are I'm trying to talk to, become that person, think like that person for as long as I can, engage that person in conversation and risk risk not being very good at making particularly enlightening conversation with them. I've had a lot of practice. I try hard. Understand their narratives. Ask them questions about their work, what they do, how they make decisions, why they choose that, what were they thinking. And then I go through the simple creative process of elimination to try and get to the point of the answer. And there is a process for that. Now, Many years ago, I think it was some. It, it, it was like in the 1930s or something. A guy, a chap called James Webb Young, wrote a book. I think it's called "The Five Steps Steps for the Creative Process" or a technique for creating, for creating ideas. ideas. That's it. Yeah, he comes up with this book, and there's five steps, and I use these five steps. So it's very simple. You basically it works like this. This is gold. Yes, this is gold. And it's very simple. So I I use step one, gather up as much information as I can. So I go out and gather up as much information as I can. I'm an ex-journalist. I'll go out, I'll be curious. I'll ask lots of questions. And then I'll ask a lot more questions because I don't understand everything. If I don't understand anything, I'm the one who will put my hand up and say, I don't get it. Step one, gather up as much information as you can. Step two, get your first ideas out of the way. They are not the answer. So many people stop there. They come up, I go, oh, I've been out talking to them, I've got this idea. And they, there's a saying in writers, I don't like it, but there's a horrible truth in it. For writers, they have this saying, they say, kill your babies. Yeah. Right? And basically what they mean is take your best work and don't be afraid to delete it. Because if it's not helping the story, it's got to go. And you will be in love with that particular paragraph or sentence of prose you wrote that just, dance off of the page and bring it to life, sometimes you've got to kill it. So your first ideas, you sometimes, they just got to go. Be done with it. They go. So that's stage two. Stage three is to forget about it. Just forget about the whole thing because we have a tool within our own head to process and solve the problem for us. Human brain incredibly powerful, brilliant, and taking masses of information and figuring out some kind of solution to it, as long as you tell it what you want it to do. So I go to bed at night thinking about the problem, knowing I can wake up in the morning with potentially some more answers. But that may not be the case. Yeah? Yeah. Forget about it altogether. And then the next step is to be ready for answers to come to you at the most unlikely time. I carry, still carry with me in this digital age a moleskin notebook. It's in front of me right now. And that's because sometimes when answers come to me, it's actually like I've got to just scribble it down fast and autocorrect 
can really spoil some ideas if you let it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's life. the next thing. So you capture those ideas. They come to you the most polite time. Step five, the final stage, is then you have to polish them and make them fit for purpose. That's just raw ideas. It's like mining a diamond out of the ground. You're not going to give that to a loved one and say, wear that on your finger because you can say it doesn't look like a diamond it just looks like a stone so you now need to polish it so it's fit for purpose so that's where you spend a lot of time taking that turning it around every looking at it every which way until you pop the idea sharp and perfectly so that's a process i use for any kind of thinking and most of the thinking we're doing really isn't about marketing it's about business solutions and i apply that and then what comes out hopefully the other side is something very, very difficult for me to go back and pitch to the client. It's usually quite painful. It's not what they want to hear. It's seldom. It's seldom what they want to hear. And so then I go through the whole process of figuring out how best to stand in front of that person or those people and frame it so that it makes sense to them, so that when you get to the point of telling them the idea, they're literally, they've already got the idea and they get it and they want the words to come out of your mouth exactly as they do. So that's the last part of the process, is actually pitching it back in and getting the buy-in. So on that note, that you talk about bringing everyone with you, how do you go about making sure that you've got a quorum of support to make sure that a great idea doesn't get killed stone dead because of bureaucracy and that sort of franchise mentality where people are more interested in their promotion, their pay packet, protecting their job. Because it must be tough selling some of these creative ideas to fusty old bureaucrats. It is. And so part of that knowing your audience as knowing the people that will be buying the product or service is also knowing the internal audience that you're going to be serving who are paying your bills. Quite often, if it's quite a stuffy environment, so I did some work for a large banking organisation, and on the whiteboard, I drew a big dial, a big circle, and I said, if this was a dial, and over on the left, it said no risk, and over on the right, it said let's be risky, where would I put the needle on the dial? So I just got them to come to a conclusion of how far we could go with the ideas. And they wanted very little risk. Fine. We've got it out in the open and it's been said. So there's that. And then getting everyone on board. The other thing is, is quite often there's other people and other motives in the mix that people don't tell you about. So I have a question that I ask. But one of the things I did many years ago is I studied and I qualified as a clinical hypnotherapist. I did this because I was really interested in this idea that people worked and made a living and helped people move them from a point of depression out and back in society using how many words. I found that fascinating. Just using words, it could shift someone's perception so much. So I started and became a qualified clinical hypnotherapist so I could understand that. So one of the questions you ask as a clinical hypnotherapist is you ask, if you want, if I had a magic wand, Marcus, if I did, I'd certainly lend it to you. Thank you. And you woke up tomorrow morning and everything in your business were just the way you wanted it to be, what would be different? And I asked that question, and I frame it slightly different without the magic wand, depending on who I'm speaking to. I asked that question, and it's fascinating. When you to one of the meetings, what came out is the person said, I basically want, they wanted to do something innovative, and it said that they wanted their boss off their back because their boss's kids were playing with the mobile phones and going on about apps, and they just wanted their boss off their back. So they wanted to go back to the boss and go, here, here's something innovative we can do. So it's basically, okay, now we know what we're trying to do, who our real audience are. It's the boss they've got to satisfy. And asking that question, really getting to understand who are the drivers and who are the people involved? So I'm not pitching to the three people that are in the room. I'm actually pitching to their boss. That's and their motivation is completely different to what it says on the brief. They've written a standard brief saying we want, we're looking for an innovative, innovative play for mobile applications because, in fact, they were looking to impress their boss with something cool and innovative. All right. And he's going to show it to his kids. 
these kids are going to tell him if it's cool or not. Okay, now the whole dynamics change. So it's very much about understanding that audience. Quite often, though, all said and done, we don't live in a perfect world. Quite often, there'll be someone that will pop up further down the road. You know, they're only on one of the decisions that you have no idea existed, and you have to quickly try and understand what their motivations are and, 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 get, and get, a, get some insight from them. But ultimately, getting buy-in involves understanding what their true motivators are. And that comes from asking that miracle question. If they woke up tomorrow and everything was just the way they wanted to be, what would be different? For Microsoft, it was very clear. We want we want thousands of people to sign up for our portal, right? Understand. For another client, it may be something different. It may be that they, like you said, they want to create awareness in the market, or they want to disrupt a little bit, or they want to upset the competitor. Who knows? But quite often, those true beliefs aren't written into the brief because when we write briefs, when anyone writes briefs, you try and write brief being the objective. So you try and cut all the the useful stuff out and just get to it needs to be poster size and have the colour green in it. Right. <laughs> you know, and that's where it kind of where we end up. Not well, that helpful really. One of the things that strikes me is there seems to be a huge requirement within the creative space to develop genuine salesmanship because all the things that you've just described are about really understanding the customer, their motivation. People buy for their reasons, not your reasons. Understanding what they want people to do, say, and remember as a result of buying that creative piece of work and making sure that throughout the process you've identified who is in the cast of characters who ultimate power in the decision ultimately rests with, who sub-decision makers are, influencers, recommenders, specifiers, technical buyers, user buyers, end customer, and also who's vying for the same budget. Because one uh, reason I've seen creative campaigns die on their face is that they haven't identified what the competitive landscape looks like internally particularly in these, this day and age where there is limited budget and everybody is vying for the same pot of money. And so it becomes really important that marketeers understand that they have to sell internally as well as provide the creative end product. So I have a couple of other questions. What I'd like to understand is what books you would recommend people read and is there anybody that you follow in terms of podcasts or in terms of great video that you can recommend to the audience? A blink list is an absolute must. I try and listen to one blink list every morning. Books to read. If you were at all curious about the work we spoke about, Marcus and I, around narrative and story, I wrote a book called Why You Need a Business Story and How to Create It. Yeah. It's on Amazon. And it gives you five simple steps for creating your business story, just in five steps. And I've tried and tested it with smalls from startups to huge corporations. It works. I've been doing it for years. The book has been out for years. I've been using it for years. The other book I really like, this is a, a big leap for me to say this, but there's something in it. It was a long time ago by a chap called Napoleon Hill. And Napoleon Hill wrote a book called Think and Grow Rich. And apart from the fact, I'm sure we'd all like to have more wealth and abundance in our life, and he talks about how we manifest that, that's to one side. What Napoleon Hill did when he took, picked up the challenge of writing this book from one of the richest people in the world at the time was he went out and he interviewed 500 people who had made their own millions in the 1920s. He did this. So he's talking to Edison, Ford. He's talking to these Carnegie's huge, huge monsters of the Industrial Revolution. He interviewed 500 of them before he wrote that book. And yeah. that just gets me every time. The insight that's in there from conducting such depth of research puts 
need to show when I go out on behalf of a client to understand what someone's thinking. 500 interviews, not with just people who made a bit of money or inherited some cash. The ones who actually rolled up their sleeves took massive risks. How did they create success? And that book is Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. If you haven't read it, then put aside the old American English it's written in and just, you know, just wander through it and be fascinated by what he's extracted from those minds and presented it in such a clear narrative. Very interesting. Okay, so final question. If you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise your 23-year-old idiot self on what not to do, what advice would you give him? Honestly, I would say to my 23-year-old self, beat your own path. I think too many times I try to conform to norms because couldn't quite fit with the norms. I have the curly hair and a slightly goofy look and I have to try twice as hard to stand in a suit next to people who look great in suits with their straight grey hair and their <laughs> proper glasses. I, and, and so I, too many times in my life I've tried to conform with status quo and it's not really worked. And only the times when I did beat my own path and more painful than the latter, that I actually began to really live. And I'd say to my 23-year-old self, beat your own path. Good advice. David Slolly, thank you very much. This has been really interesting, very insightful. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please like, comment, and share it. And if you've got a topic that you'd like me to cover in future podcasts, please get in touch at mcauchi, M-C-A-U-C-H-I, at sandler.com. And if you'd like to crash one of my classes, you'd be very welcome. Just ping me an email at that address or call me on 07-515-937-221. David, thank you. Thank you, Marcus.